You're listening to The Open Podcasts. Yes, hello. This is uh, Ian Carter, and it is fantastic to be with you, even though I'm sure we would all love to be elsewhere this week, taking in what should have been the 149th Open Championship at Royal St. George's. Of course, current conditions mean that that's not possible. The good news, though, is that the RNA have come up with a pioneering idea that should give us our open fix this Sunday with the Open for the Ages, which will be accessible from various platforms, most notably at theopen.com. All the details there. Now, there's already been plenty of action coming through on social media channels, showing iconic shots from great players on the most famous golf course in the world. The project is a reimagined version of the championship, the past meeting the present, great champions from so many different eras fighting it out over the old course at St. Andrews. It really is a fascinating prospect. No one knows who's going to emerge as the winner. Could it be Tiger? Could it be Seve, Jack, Sinek Faldo, or any number of the other great names who've graced the Open down the years? And they include two of our very special guests right now, the legendary Tom Watson, a five-times champion, and twice-winner Pordrig Harrington. Great to have you uh, both along for this discussion. I suspect, though, both of you presumably would like to be elsewhere this week, in yeah, all honesty. I, I'd, love, I'd love to be playing. Uh, it's strange times we're going through, for sure. Uh, and obviously, to miss an Open Championship, is it, when, when they cancelled it, I was kind of gutted. But then you realise there's bigger things going on and we can... We can handle it for one year as players. But I am looking forward to this idea. I want to see who actually wins the Open for the ages. Uh, and what's interesting from my perspective, I, I don't believe I'd be in contention, but clearly Tom would be right at the top of the list there. And Tom, one thing I have to say is, and you wouldn't notice, even though I, I spent a good bit of time with Tom, my brothers are, one of my brothers is nearly 10 years older and nine years older. So they grew up in Tom Watson's era. So they were, Tom was their hero. So I was going through the different Opens and I, I know a lot of the Opens that Tom has won and I, I didn't see them, but I actually believe like I lived through them because I heard so many stories from my brothers and it, it's amazing. I guarantee you I didn't see them, but I, I think I did. And uh, that's the great thing about the Open Championship and, and I suppose sport and everything. You live it through other people as much as your own experiences. And certainly when it comes to Tom's five wins, uh, you were a big hero in my family as I grew up. Well, thanks, thanks, Padraig. It, uh, and I started uh, as a uh, as a total rookie in 1975, not knowing anything about Lynx golf. Uh, I came over to Carnoustie. Uh, had a caddy by the name of Alfie Files from Southport, who was a crusty old character and loved to smoke his cigarettes and drink his famous grouse whiskey. And um, uh, he was he had caddied for Gary Player at Carnoustie when Gary won the championship there. But Gary was uh, had rabbit as, as caddy. Uh, so, you know, we started off the championship there and I, you know, as golfers, we know sometimes when we go into championships, we we're hoping we're playing our best. Uh, you know, I wasn't playing particularly my best, but then during my practice session, uh, on, on Tuesday night there, uh, I, I, I found something that worked with my golf swing and, and I kind of carried that on throughout the championship there. And, it, and obviously it worked for me, but, uh, again, I was a total, you know, I was wet behind the ears. I didn't know anything about Lynx golf. Didn't particularly care for it. I didn't like the luck of the bounce or the, uh, the way the ball rolled, uh, 
uh, you know, you, you know, Lynx golf is different than uh, the, the American golf we play over here, where the the ball stops quicker in American golf than it does in Lynx. You have to you have to judge how far the ball is going to roll as well as how far it carries in Lynx golf, and that's that's the uh, the element of feel uh, that uh, a, a Lynx golfer has to have to be successful. So I didn't really cherish that uh, that way of playing for about four years and. Till I finally uh, told myself, I said, you know, you, you got to embrace this game the way it's played on Lynx golf courses. Um, so, but it, it, you know, the Open Championship, uh, I remember going back in time uh, when I was a youngster, uh, you didn't see much of it on TV, uh, but uh, I knew the history of it, especially uh, the history of, uh, through, through the eyes of Bob Jones. Bobby Jones, our great uh, amateur player, won the Back then, the, the Grand Slam in 1930. Uh, Bob, uh, he had an incident at St. Andrews, which was pretty, uh, pretty amazing to me that, uh, when he was a young man, I think he was 20, in his early 20s, he's playing them, uh, in, in the Open Championship there. And he got so frustrated on the 11th hole, he put it in the bunker to the left of the par three green. And he, he I don't know, he took three or four or five swings to get out. He couldn't get out and he just, picked his ball up and walked in to the clubhouse, quit the tournament right then and there. Uh, that was the great Bob Jones. And so, you know, there are a lot of, a lot of stories about Bob Jones, of course, when he was a champion, but, you know, growing up in the game, as you and I well know, there are times in our lives that they go off, the game become, becomes very frustrating. And, uh, you know, that, uh, that was an indicator to me that we're all human. The great Bob Jones was human. Tell us this, Tom. You said there in your thing that there wasn't much of the Open Championship shown on television as you were growing up. Uh, that was a completely different experience in, for me. Sort of a, by the 80s, the only golf that we really got to see each year was the Open Championship shown all day. Like they start at 7 o'clock. And, or it seemed like they started at 7 o'clock in the morning. And it always seemed like it was sunny at the Open. Any memory I have is of a sunny, burnt-out golf course playing true links golf. So when you were growing up and you were getting to love the game of golf, was there much golf on television, or you know, did you see it on TV, or how did they? How did you build up your love for the game? Well, the I saw you know Arnold Palmer. Arnold Palmer was my hero uh, when he won the Masters in '58, '60, '62, and '64. I mean, it was. It was all Arnie. And then Jack came along, of course, in 61 and beat him in the U.S. Open Championship in the playoff. And I hated Jack. I mean, Jack was the villain. Uh, my hero got beat by this guy by the name of Fat Jack. You know, they were, they were disparaging Jack, the way he wore his clothes and his weight and all that. The problem was that Jack was better than Arnie. <laughs> it was just, <laughs> he was better than Arnie. And, you know, you know, when I was a kid, I really had, I had the great privilege of playing with both Arnie and Jack in exhibitions when I was 15 and 17 years old, respectively. Um, and got a chance to, to see him up close and personal. And, and, uh, it really gave me the, the dream to become a professional golfer is by playing with these, but, but, but with, by playing with these, uh, these great players. And, uh, you know, I was lucky when I grew up because I had a great dad who had a great passion for the game. Stan Thirsk, who was the pro at the club that my dad belonged to, uh, he had a tremendous passion for the game and took me under his arm. And, uh, you know, we, we, we played so many rounds of golf together and he helped me, 
uh, with a lot of things with my golf swing and over the years. But uh, the passion that these people had, and I'm sure, Padraig, you had people in your life that had that passion that you looked up to. Uh, I looked up to uh, my dad and, and, and Stan and then subsequently Arnie and then Jack. And yes, it was on TV. You watched TV at the Masters, especially. You watched the Masters. And then the U.S. Open came out and you watched the U.S. Open. And, um, uh, and, and the Open Championship uh, uh, was not that prominent uh, of, of a telecast over here. I'm not sure exactly when I first saw it over here, but I, I watched it there. And it always looked kind of funny. The, the golf course was brown and, and and these guys are they're wearing sweaters in the middle of the summer and I couldn't quite understand it. But uh, once I started playing there, I, I, I started to get a, a true understanding of what it was about. You, just before, so, sorry to, to interrupt you there, there Tom, but uh, Podrick, just before you, you jump in on, on, on that point about your, your influences, we, we should also introduce the fourth <laughs> member of our panel um, because we're we've got chris solomon here better known as solly from the no laying up podcast great to have you uh, along with us uh, solly i i think we're probably going to struggle to get a word in edgeways which frankly is absolutely fine i mean i'm sitting here on this zoom call with you i'm just thinking to myself here we are four of us all together seven claret jugs to between us i mean it's we're, we're in good shape I, you know, I have thought about just logging off here for a second because I truly don't know what my role here is because these two can just kind of facilitate their own discussion. But I'm a bit the same. I do want to ask a question kind of, I guess, more towards Tom because you brought up Bobby Jones and there's a, an alleged quote from Bobby. And I, I honestly, I can't track down the source of it. I'm not even sure it's real, but I think you'll understand the spirit of it. But it was something along the lines of if you say you love the old course and you've played it less than 10 times, you're lying. So I want to know your your first your true and honest impression of the old course the first time you played it and how that relationship may have evolved over the well, years. Uh, hate is too strong a word <laughs> because when I first played it, I did not like the golf course. I didn't like the blindness of uh, of the shots off the tees, uh, and being as pre- precise as I wanted to be. To try to find, you know, where where you had the bunker on the left and the bunker on the right, to try to hit the ball inside that goalpost, if you will. Uh, you had to walk through the gorse and try to and put your club down and get the right line. Now they've got the the stroke saver uh, yardage books, and they have the they have, they have the photograph at the bottom, and it shows you the exact line over you know, that piece of gorse right there is the left is the right edge of the left bunker and that piece of gorse right there is the left edge of the right bunker so you don't have to do all that stuff anymore but i didn't like the blindness of it didn't like the firmness of it um uh but i uh but i love the history of it you know that you know honestly standing on the tee there it gave you shivers in the in the sense that you know the all the greats stood on that little tiny uh box uh, right underneath the clubhouse there, the, you know, the old, the old course clubhouse. It gave, it gave you the shivers that, yep, uh, you know, I, I'm standing in the same tee that, that, uh, you know, you know, the, the greats, all the greats have stood on, uh, the history of the game. Uh, so I had a kind of a love hate relationship with the golf course, but, uh, I finally, I finally, over the years of playing it, uh, I finally, uh, got to, Got to love the golf course. Even though it's a Lynx golf course, it's not 
that exposed in terms of it's a, it's a warm enough course to play in general. You don't feel as you go out and in, it feels pretty good until you get out into that little peninsula right out there in the corner and and you don't want to spend any more time out there than you have to. <laughs> That's and, right. And, and if you, so I always fear on those holes and, and no matter how you're playing on the golf course, and this is my one, ex well, a couple of experiences with St. Andrews. First of all, I went as a student uh, to play the St. Andrews Trophy as an amateur. So I loved the experience, the town, everything about it, the history. I'm still nervous standing on the first tee and the 18th tee every time I go back. Every time I still get the hair standing up on the back of my neck. I love that experience. So first time was great, but I always found the golf course much tougher than what people said. I think people, I don't know if they see enough of it. Like people say, oh, just hit it left. Well, you can't just hit it left. There's bunkers up the left in a lot of holes. And then for me, the fear was you hit it in the wrong place. It only gets worse. <laughs> it does. So it's not like, yeah, yeah. You, you, you have a go for the next shot and you just put yourself worse into a hole further in and you're going, well, I can't, I don't even can't go backwards. I don't want to go backwards. And it's just getting deeper and deeper. So for a competitive course, I know the scoring can be good now, but there's always a fear in the back of your mind that your whole round could finish on one bad shot, that you just put yourself in an inextricable place that you just can't get out of. And, and more so when we go play the Open Championship because the bunkers, you know, we, I play the Dunhill there every year and the bunkers are reasonable, not the left-hand bunker on 12. Who, Ian, you must have the name of it, please. I, I should know the name of the bunker, left on 12. 11, I made a mistake there. It's a good question. I'll, I'll get that for you in one second okay. because... That, that is the... That is the worst bunker on the golf course. Right. A, 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 I've got a, the strokes over here. I've so got a poster. <laughs> I can't see it. The hill that. one on the left was where Bobby Jones yeah, hit Yeah, on the left There's of the There's the Strathbunker on 11. That's that's the super deep yeah. one on the right. I, I, the I right. know that one intimately. Yeah. And, you've, and you've got a hill on the left, which I, 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 I know extremely yeah. well. A left. Yeah. When you go into that bunker, you're going in at the wrong angle. So you go in straight on, but you have to play out to the right. So you actually really can be stuck against a face that's 10 feet high. So what do you do? And I, I think that pressure and intimidation, I, I have always found that St. Andrews has that. And I, I know people would say, oh, well, look, you can make birdies on the golf course, but not if they don't want you to. Uh, that's the great trick of a, 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 not a trick, but the beauty yeah. of the golf course is they, they still can manage to use pin positions and different things. I know it's got a little bit short over time, but they have ways of making sure that they the holes can play to the true difficulty that they want them to play in any given time. So it, it's for me, it's a fascinating golf course. Just that it changes all the time, and there is a, le a level of intimidation. I know they've brought the tee box back on seventeen and fourteen now, which brings back in what I would have imagined Tom would have gone through back in your day, Tom. Those TT shots back in the day must have been like incredibly intimidating with the old equipment. Well, yeah, yeah, fourteen with the out of bounds to the right there. You had to, you had to, uh, you had to fit that that drive in there. And I uh, actually, you know, I, I learned how to play that. You know, you actually played it up up the out of bounds because normally you had a right to left win there, and uh, you know you you know, had, you had to challenge the out of bounds there. But you know. One of the key shots there that really goes unsung is the is the shot to the eleventh, the par three. That green, the sloping green there, uh, the back right pin position. That green, uh, you know, I, you know, when you, 
I always, you know, that was, you know, 17, fine. You know, you play 17, you make a bogey, who cares? Everybody makes bogey at 17. But 11, you can you can go for a big number of 11 well, so quickly and make your I, head swim. I, I just want to jump in on this because two reasons. One, just to give a perspective for the recreational golfer, because the great thing about St. Andrews is that while you guys can play great championships there, and Pordrick, you, you know, you've won two Dunhill links there. You were in contention for a good while of the, the last Open Championship to be played there. For the likes of Solly and I, we have the chance, if we come out the ballot or we know the right people, to be able to play as well. The point being that it's, it's public land. And as someone who is a recreational golfer, I have to say it is the most fun golf course you, you can go and play. It, it it doesn't beat you up, but you have to play really well to score well. I'm sitting here in my office right now, and I've got one of those brass scorecards that you can buy from like Octoloni's shop or the or the uh, the open shop uh, in the town of St Andrews, and it's from October 1993. At the time, I was a 15 handicapper, and I shot 84, 15 handicap, net 69. Now, that is just the most perfect day's golf, isn't it? And the fact that it happens to be on the most famous golf course in the world. And I think it's because the greens are so massive. Obviously, ordinarily, the pins are not going to be as challenging for us as they are for you guys. But if we can go and play it. That's the, that, that is the point. It's, it's there for everybody to play what, whatever your standard. I don't know what, what you think, Solly, on that. To, to your point there, Ian and, and Padraig as well, and Tom, what you said about, you know, the first two times I played it, go left. Just go. There's all kinds of room. For an amateur golfer, you can play left all you want. And I kept ending up with these 75-yard lob wedges, like you're saying, and I'm realizing, hey, there's a bunker right in my way, or hey, there's a huge mound right in my way. And it took my third time playing it where I had a caddy who charted me around the course the right way and said, like, look, you can play left, but you're going to be in a bad spot. you got to take on the gorse on the right if you want an angle into it. And just the way he charted me around, it opened my eyes to the game of golf. I'm not even exaggerating when I say that. And we got to 16T, and he tells me, he's like, he looks at the, the pin sheet, and he charts it, and he says, all right, we're going up number three. And it blew my mind. That's when the 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 genius of the old course just unlocked of like, that's why you're, there's double wide fairways. On a certain day, it might be the right play to go down this fairway. But a certain day with a different wind, it, you know, you don't want to take that on. And so the options just become so overwhelming. And I've never valued a caddy so much and that he truly unlocked the genius of the golf course. But it took three times to get it. That's kind of going back to the Bobby Jones quote. You might look at a bunker one day and be like, why? That's 200, 205 carry. Why is that even there? And then the wind shifts back into you the next day and you, you're wondering if you can even co cover that bunker. I would say the sign of a great golf course is a golf course that's very playable for amateurs. But when the pros come along, it can be made challenging. And, and St. Andrews is definitely that. I, I know the first hole in 2010, I've hit a nice tee shot down there. I've got lob wedge in to the front pin, hit it a little heavy, I hit it in the water, take six and feel like my open championship is ended right there. How could you take a double bogey with a lob wedge? So there is, when it's a championship venue, there is a lot of bite in the golf course. And yet, as I said, I, I, I'd love to see all golf courses designed like that that would give the amateurs more of a chance. And then, because the pros play them so little, it, you know, why would you design your golf course for the pros? Keeping it at St Andrews, because that is the venue for, for the Open for the ages. But just moving on to the, the concept, guys, of 
of of trying to pit golfers from different eras against each other. I mean, I'm going to be fascinated to see how this this goes because certainly, you know, whenever I'm asked that question, you know, would would Tiger have beaten Jack or or, or whatever? It's it's almost impossible to to answer, and yet this this whole project is is looking to do that. How, I mean, how do how do we feel about that as a as a concept? Pitting the eras, n- never mind the players, against each other. Well, we're in the virtual age now that we, where we it can be done. That's the beauty of this uh, open for the ages event. We're going to see the uh, you know, the ability to actually uh, you know, show players together. Uh, and and show them in, in, with their swings and the way they play the old course and that that's that's going to be uh, uh, it, it's going to be wonderful to watch. It, it, uh, we know it's a fantasy, but on the other hand, you know we're uh, and the fans are obviously the fans are going to be involved with this because they're going to determine who's going to be the champion, uh, and that's that's uh, that's going to be interesting to see. But uh, I think I know who's the champion is going to be, but. Uh, uh, and it's not me. I know that. Uh, but I know oh, that God. the, I, I know that, uh, uh, the, you know, the, the types of, uh, you know, events that happen at St. Andrews from, and I, and I hope they show Jack's putt at the 18th hole when he beat Doug Sanders, when he threw the putter up in the air and ducked, both of them ducked, you know, I hope that's a part of the telecast. I'm sure it will be. That's, that, that was uh, one of the iconic moments in, in open championship golf, I think. Are you going to have a, Ian, is there going to be like a best dress competition as well? Because if we're going back through 50 years of, of, of different styles on the golf course. Well, well maybe that'll uh, be the point at which Doug Sanders actually eventually wins. Yes, <laughs> indeed. You know, I, 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 I'm surprised if Tom, with your five Open Championship uh, wins, if you're not at the very top of the list, because for me, I would put Tom Watson's career when you think of Tom Watson, you think of Tom Watson as an open champion. Uh, so it's, it, you're as, it's amazing how, how much your name is now synonymous with open golf, links golf. Uh, you know, coming from the States, you really did. Uh, I don't know. Would you, would you say you, you broke down barriers as much as maybe Europe and the Ryder Cup has now done that? You did it with the open championship. You know, just, you made it yours. Uh, so, uh, you know, it, it is interesting. I think you're being humble saying you haven't won or you're not in contention. But uh, I, I definitely think I would have put you at the top of the list. There's others who are who are equally there. But what I like to think about all the players over the last 50 years or more, whatever era the player came from, he was a winner in that era. And he would have figured out to, how to be a winner in the modern day with modern equipment, just as much as winners nowadays would have figured out how to use the old equipment. So it, it's m- much more to do with the what was inside them and their passion than the outward golf swing. They just knew how to get it done with what they had and what was in front of them. They knew how to, to beat the person standing beside them and that's all they had to do at that time. So it would be, it's crazy to think that somebody couldn't use equipment or couldn't go backwards or couldn't go forwards because all they've proved by their success is whatever's put in front of them, they can succeed at that level. Well, that's why there's sports psychologists on the golf on the golf tour now. They they're trying to get inside the people's minds and see what that intangible uh, to determine what that intangible is to, uh, to, uh, to differentiate between the uh, the also runs and the winners. 
and, and are the qualities to do that are they are they mental as you as you hint towards there tom or is there a a technical thread that runs through all of these great players because you know St Andrews as much as any venue has identified the very best golfers at the top of their game at that particular time as its champions well there there is a thread that goes through I think uh, all the greats in the sense that they uh, they have they have the understanding uh, the innate understanding of how to play the game with feel they play with feel. They're not mechanical. They play with feel, and they get uh, they get in a rhythm, and that feel takes over, and they uh, and they succeed. Um, you know, I, I'm going to dive, dive. I'm going to go in a little bit different direction right here. I have to ask Padraig a question. Padraig, at the 17th hole at Birkdale, you had uh, the lead in the tournament. And you are sitting there after the drive. You're on the down slope going into that par five off a bare dirt lie. You got that cross bunker in your way. Uh, and that's death. You don't want to be in that cross bunker. And you take that five wood and you blast that thing over the, over the, over the bunker there. What in the hell were you thinking about there? You know, it's a Bob Tarns quote. It's easy. It's difficult. It's easy to hit a great shot when you're feeling good. It's difficult to hit a great hit a good shot when you're feeling bad. So I was feeling great at that stage. I was on right on top. It was my favorite club in the bag. I just hit three wood onto fifteen. I'd hit five wood a couple of times. I loved the club. I loved the shot, and I knew if I hit it, it took everything out of the equation. If I hit a good shot. So, you know, it was my chance to win right there. Whereas if I kicked the can down the road and laid up, which I could have laid up, I I was distinctly afraid of Greg Norman because I had bought into the story that this was the last hooray for, for Greg Norman. The media were all on it's the the sympathy, the the sentimental win. And Greg was, I think Greg was about four shots behind, but he'd he'd hit driver more aggressive than me off the tee. And I just really felt he was going to make an eagle. And I just said, look, if I hit my shot, that's it. Nobody else can do anything if I hit my shot. Where if I lay up, and if you laid up, you could, it was difficult to get it on the back tier with a pitch. There was a lot. It wasn't like it was that simple a shot with a layup. But the fact is, I took a shot on when I was feeling good. And we, we know as players, Tom, look, you don't take a shot on when you're feeling bad unless you absolutely have to. But when you're feeling good, that's when you start chasing pins, doing things. And I, I've got to say, I know it worked out as well as it did. It was about 245-yard carry over the bunker. I felt I had that. I ran up there. I hold out for Eagle. It did give me the luxury, which is one of the greatest pleasures in competitive golf, is to walk down the 18th hole with a lead that you can enjoy it. So if you're coming down the last and you're level one ahead or even two ahead, you have to knuckle down and finish the job. Whereas I was walking down the last with a four-shot lead, I got that one experience in life where you can absorb it and wave at the crowds and enjoy. I, I By the time I had to hit a putt in the 72nd hole, I actually had a 15 putt and I really didn't physically know what I was doing or mentally know at all over that putt. I was so excited because I'd won the tournament 20 minutes earlier. And, and I will say that's the greatest thing about I know it was a great shot. 
the fact is I got to enjoy 18. And, and I'm, I'm sure, to, to tell us yourself, Tom, you had the different experiences. You've had playoff wins. You've had right down the, the end. How have you felt about the crowds? Because it's the one time, it, it's like an amphitheatre down the 18 most open championships. You have grandstands. Everybody is swelled there right at the end. And it's the one time you get to feel like a, a, a football star, a hero, as you come down 18. Well, I had the luxury only once in my, my victories there at, at Nearfield 1980. I had a four-shot lead coming in the last hole uh, to have that luxury. All the other, all the other victories uh, were tooth and nail. You know, they were, they were, uh, I didn't have the luxury of really experiencing uh, that, uh, uh, that letting go, so to speak, you know, coming down there. But, you know, I, I touched on the intangible, which you said right there, the, the intangible part of that. You were feeling good enough about your swing at that time to take a difficult lie on the downslope off bare dirt that you had to carry, and you knew that you could do it. And and uh, there wasn't any question in your mind that that's, that was the that was the play. Uh, and that's the intangible that sometimes we uh, you know, we we can't describe. We can't you know we can't describe. But I think I thought you described that very well right there. Solly, it's it, it's amazing. We're we're getting such an insight into a, a champion's mindset, aren't we? That carpe diem, that seize the moment, intangible that only a very very few people are, are, are genuinely blessed with that at the very highest level. Yeah, I'm I'm curious this and uh, this question maybe more for Tom than Podrick, having you know grown up playing much more links golf, I'm sure than Tom did. But I, I've always been really impressed by at least especially in your in your later years how much you embrace playing just casual links golf. I remember seeing pictures on Twitter of you up at Brora with the sheep rolling out there and stuff like that. But did you how how did you transition into Open Championship week? in your prime did you come over and play did you go over play casually play tournaments leading up to the open championship how did you get yourself in the mindset of links golf and how long does that kind of mindset change take well i always came over early and for one reason i wanted to get used to the uh, the, the time lag the uh the, the time change and i always felt that i had to i had to uh, be over there at least five or six days prior to thursday's tee off or as it was in 1975, it was a Wednesday tee off. So I, I had to get over there early. And what what else could I do? I went. I could play golf, and I, I tied that in with playing golf at uh, various locations, and uh, especially after uh, coming over with Sandy Tatum in 1981, we came over and we played Bally Bunning for the first time, the old course of Bally, which I just truly fell in love with. Um, and then we were going up to play. Uh, uh, Port Rush and, and uh, County Down, but uh, we, we had to nix that because of the troubles, unfortunately, and ended up uh, going over to play Prestwick and Troon and then up to Dornick uh, and had a, just a great trip uh, playing courses that I hadn't played before. And that just really accelerated uh, in, in, in subsequent years where I came over and played a variety of golf courses prior to the Open Championship. But basically it was to get uh, my body – uh, in, in tune with tune with the time change, um, but uh, you know there's a there's a difference in turf. Uh, and Padre can uh, he he will agree to this. The turf in America, you hear that squish. Uh, in on links golf, you hear that thump. Uh, and you know there's a difference in the sound and the feel uh, when you come over here. And I think it's you know it doesn't take long. You know, once you've played it, 
it doesn't take long to get you know, readjusted to it. Uh, but it's but just the fun of playing links, uh, you know, and, and trying to, <laughs> and trying to measure how far the ball is going to roll when you hit when it hits the ground. Uh, those sorts of things I think really help you get ready for the open venue. Uh, when you're playing links golf you know, outside the open venue. Podrick, how different is it playing an open championship compared with any other event? I mean, I know that you have always worked very hard on playing links golf before going into a, into an open, that kind of level of preparation, which kind of speaks to what, what Tom talks about there as well. But just in terms of the the environment of, of an open, the sounds, the smells, the feel of it as a championship compared with other tournaments it it is unique isn't it oh it's totally unique because the sound travels right across the golf course so there's always an ambient sound on a an open championship so there could be a a group six holes away and the crowd are clapping for them and that sound there's nothing to stop it there's no trees the wind brushes through the grass so there's it's, it's a very comfortable experience playing an open championship i i definitely think in terms of there's, I suppose there's a bit more space. Uh, the crowd, there's a nice, the crowd seem to enjoy it, get pretty close to you. You get some funny comments from the crowds at times. I, I think it's a more personable experience as a major. Uh, you just seem to be, uh, let's just take St. Andrews. Like you are teeing off and finishing in the town of St. Andrews. So it doesn't necessarily have to be people who are there for the open. They could be locals, even though they would be interested in the golf but people are just there living the golf. And you get that sense when you're on a Lynx golf course that the golf course itself is part of the community and, and a huge part of the economic uh, driver of that community. Carnoustie is a perfect example of that. Uh, and you feel that when you're out in the golf course, you can you can feel an atmosphere on a Lynx golf course. You haven't just... The people are very proud of their course. They take ownership of the course. Everybody in the village that that golf course is in takes ownership and uh, you definitely, even when you're out in between rounds in the Open Championship, when you're out having a meal or, or, or beforehand, you can get that sense. People are asking you, well, what do you think of the golf course? Is our course the toughest? Is ours the best? There's that comparison. And that that brings leads into the atmosphere for the player. They know there's there's a bit of heritage to the got to the site that they're at, that there's there's more to it than just how they're playing. And they, they I think players respect an open championship more for that they understand that people involved in that golf course are living golf living the whole idea of that open championship like again we go back to Carnoustie the fact that they went back to Carnoustie or even back to even came back to Royal Port Rush what that meant for the local community the players understand that and feel that and it it, it does make the event special on the golf course but you know, I would say crowds wise, again, for some reason, I can never remember it raining at an open. I only remember nice weather. I can remember, like I think in 99s, ice creams and things like that at an open championship. Uh, I don't, it's interesting, Tom's coming obviously from nice warm weather out there in Texas and, and places like that. Uh, I'm thinking to myself, I always remember t-shirts at the or or Back 20, 30 years ago, you'd always see the guy sleeping with no shirt on in the, in uh, on one of the sand dunes. <laughs> let me let me interject here for a second because you you say about taking ownership in 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 the tournament at, in the Open Championship. You know the fans 
really take ownership in it. And they're their greatest fans in golf. And, and, and a, a memory that's always will be etched in my mind is the Saturday at Royal St. George's, uh, the last time I played there. Uh, it was raining like hell, cats and dogs. Uh, and we're out there and we got the umbrellas out there like this in front of us. Yeah, forget the umbrellas. <laughs> just wear, the, wear the, the, rain, the rain suits and get wet. You know, the umbrellas were useless. It was blowing like hell and it was raining cats and dogs. And going around that golf course, playing that golf course in those conditions, it was, it was enjoyable to me. But the, the thing I remember, you know, really in the, in probably the most poignant memory I have were the stands. The stands were full of fans. They were there in their rain suits, getting rained on, maybe an occasional umbrella. They're just getting soaked in there that they wanted a seat. And they were in the stands watching golf. You wouldn't find that anywhere else. And that, you know, that, that to me always epitomizes the, the love of the game that the fans at an open championship have. It's an event. They come and they watch it. Uh, with a passion unlike any other golf event. Solly, do do you feel that way about the Open Championship? I'm so glad you asked that because I can only speak from a fan's perspective of watching on television, but we get up in the States at 4 a.m., whatever it is, and turn on the TV, and you're kind of groggy, you get your coffee, whatever. But as soon as you flip it on, you hear that applause that you don't hear in the States. When somebody hits an 8-iron from 175 to the center of the green and it's 30 feet from the hole – you hear a strong applause from everyone in the gallery. And that just immediately transports you to the Open Championship. And that the fans there appreciate that shot as much as one that hits five feet from the hole and backspins, which those those are the shots that get the biggest ovations in the States. But they appreciate exactly, and they know that's the proper golf shot. And that, that it always rings true to me. And that just puts me right in that Open Championship, hearing that applause for the first time when you flip it on that Thursday morning. And now you guys got me really missing the fact that we're not going to see a <laughs> see a brand new open, though we are excited for the open for the ages. We, yeah, and and let's consider some of the the great players that that people are going to be be watching and 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 viewing in this in this open for the, for the ages. I mean, you famously call him that what the the big cat on no laying up, uh, Tiger. Uh, given the command performances for his three claret jugs, obviously a huge huge candidate for for this, but. Tiger at the Open, what, what, I mean, Pordrick, you, you played an awful lot of golf, uh, with him, um, at, at the height of his power. Um, he is, he was a phenomenon, uh, in terms of the, the Open. I had a conversation with, um, Colin Montgomery. Uh, he was talking about two, 2005 and he, he finished second. He's playing with Tiger, but actually his prime concern were, was Goosen and Olathebel behind and not being overtaken by them rather than hunting down Tiger because he was just such a presence. He wasn't someone who would, who would basically screw up down the stretch. So actually he was playing for second place. Yeah, I think that there was an element with that. Uh, but as you said, he, you know, he didn't win every year either. Nope. I think uh, for me, like the experience of Hoylake, you know, the way he dominated that golf course, the way he played the golf course, nobody else was capable of playing. The golf course was so burnt out that week; it was so firm and fast that you could you struggled so hard to get the ball on the green that you were forced to take the tee shots on to make the second shot short. 
and it that course just eats you up because you're always going through bunkers and it's slight dog leg and you're missing. Tiger played conservatively and laid back up and everybody said, oh, that was genius. He laid up of all the trouble, all the bunkers. None of us could have played from where he hit his second shot from. Oh, if you added up his second shot, every second shot he was hitting was 180 to 220 yards into rock hard greens, baked out in sunny weather. We just weren't capable of hitting, playing from there. Even if I placed my ball every hole in the perfect, perfectly where Tiger did, I wouldn't have been competitive against him. He put us under pressure, Tiger, that a lot of people, and this happened to a lot of people in the whole of Tiger's career, he put you under so much pressure you didn't play your own game. And then you got pushed into trying to do more than you could. And then obviously if you try and do more than you can, you generally fail miserably and Tiger then gets to walk away with it. Uh, I, I do say that High Lake was a sublime experience. There was, there was, I suppose it was very similar to his 2000 win at the US Open. He was so far ahead in quality compared to the field that you get the impression with Tiger. And I think it is what Monty was, was alluding to there. He wasn't, he could have won by more if he had to. Now that, that was the impression. Maybe that wasn't true. And maybe that's why players backed off at times or, or pushed too hard and failed against him. But, you know, you would have said Lynx golf was the one great leveler that, you know, Lynx, the great thing about Lynx golf, great thing about the open championship, it tests every part of your game. It's not, golf was never meant to be a fair game. It's meant to test your, test your mental fortitude. And, you know, you get good, bad, good and bad bounces and you have to deal with it and accept it. Lynx does that. So the Open was the best chance you ever had a beaten Tiger, but he definitely had a little bit of a, he had a leaping ability on the rest of the field. And then obviously that mental, just that little step up that people definitely didn't do their own thing. You look back, you'd say, play your own game and, and see what happens. Uh, but sometimes it just wasn't even close. <laughs> So, I mean, Tom, you're going, going back an era or two. Jack Nicholas was a, a similarly dominant figure. He, you weren't someone who, who was intimidated by him. You had the great jewel in the sun with him. You were able to beat him at open championships. But did he have that kind of influence over a great many of the, the field at an open championship because of who he was and his force of personality? Well, without a doubt, you know, when you're just like Tiger. Uh, of today, Jack was the same uh, in his prime. Uh, when you looked at the leaderboard, that big yellow leaderboard of the Open Championship, back in those days, you only looked for one name, Jack Nicholas. Uh, you know, just the same thing today. You'll look at that big yellow leaderboard, you look for one name, Woods. You know, that's, uh, and Jack had that, uh, he, he had that aura about him, uh, but he, he backed it up. Jack was the best at hitting the proper shot at the right time, I think, of anybody in my era. Uh, he, uh, he, he was really good at the risk-reward elements of, of each shot. Uh, he understood the game and how it should be played. His strategy, playing golf courses, I always wanted to play practice rounds with him because I wanted to see how he, he managed to go around the golf course. And, and I learned a lot from it, and it helped me. It helped me win. Uh, and that, that, uh, uh, you know, that's invaluable. Uh, you know, we all have our, now it seems like our caddies tell us how to play the golf course. No, you, you look at the players and what, what's the player? How's the player want to play this hole? You know, Padre alluded to, uh, you know, Woods laying back. 
He didn't hit in a single fairway bunker the whole week when he played at Hoylake. But he's hitting four irons uh, into these rock-hard greens and hitting it 10 feet and 12 feet and 20 feet. Uh, and as Padraig said, nobody else could do that. And that's what, but he, he knew his talent that week. Similarly, uh, in 1980, uh, uh, at Muirfield, uh, when I played there, going into the tournament, uh, uh, I had a game plan. I was putting my absolute best in my career anytime, at any time. And the only thing I, uh, figured out, I said, you know, I don't have to play all that well because I'm going to make every putt I look at. All I have to do is keep it out of the bunkers. And, uh, you know, all the fairway bunkers and the bunkers at the 13th, the, the short par three up the hill, you can't get in those bunkers. And I hit that green four days in a row. And uh, I hit it in only one fairway bunker the whole week, and that was a cross bunker at 17. when I hit it, tried to hit it over from, from a, an awkward lie in the rough. Um, and made bogey, uh, but uh, the rest of the rest of the week it was I ran the tables with the putter, and uh, so I had a game plan there. It worked for me. Uh, and that Tiger had a game plan at Hoy Lake, and it worked for him. And then you can have someone like Seve Solly, who you know just seemed the game plan was flair, wasn't it? And and uh, extraordinary short game, but happy to to smash the ball far and wide and recover from car parks and, and create his own open folklore in that way. Well, and that's what I'm so excited about to watch this is a lot of, you know, the moments of, from Tom's career and, and Seve were before my time and I never got to, I mean, we've seen the highlights, but you don't get to see the shots that didn't even make the highlight reel. And I find those to be as interesting, you know, as, as the highlights are because, you know, you're not going to put it like I was talking about earlier, the proper shot to 30 feet, whatever. That's not going to make the highlight reel. But I enjoy seeing guys play those kind of shots. And, you know, we're talking about about Tiger. And I was reminded of I think it was after his press conference. You know, they asked him about, you know, the bunkers at St. Andrews in 2000. And he said, you know, I was in a, I was in a bunker every day on the practice screen. <laughs> and he and I, I, I just I wanted to ask you guys if you can comprehend how somebody can play and four days of open championship golf at the old course and not hit it in one single bunker. So, sorry to spoil what's going to come on Sunday, but you're not going to see Tiger in any bunkers, I don't think. It's called talent <laughs> and touch. You know, the remarkable thing about Tiger when he won there at St. Andrews was uh, that I was I was watching uh, was his distance control and his putting. He, he hit the ball 60 feet from the hole, 40 feet from the hole, uh, at times outside of 60 feet, he putted the ball stone dead. Every putt. You never saw him run it three feet by or leave it three feet short. He was equal distance to the hole. And that, uh, you know, that's, there's a touch to that to you that's remarkable. And that, you know, that's one of the things that, uh, you know, it saves shots, obviously. But that touch and feel, uh, you, you can't practice that. You've got to have it innately. It saves a lot of stress as well, Tom. It does, just like you said, you, yeah, just like you said in 1980. Like if you if you if you're feeling good going in on the greens, it takes so much pressure and stress off the rest of your game. If you're hitting your long putts up to you know gimme distance, just less work. And one thing, any tournament is the same. But one thing you really know when it comes to a major, it's a stressful week. And Sunday is going to be twice the stress of the first three days. You've got to be fresh and ready. It, it's it's the less bother you have, the less drama you have 
on the first three days coming into that Sunday, the fresher and stronger you're going to be. Uh, so that's the thing about a Lynx golf course, an open championship. It causes a lot of drama and you really want to avoid it. Like even, as you said, you're avoiding cross bunkers or bunkers on the golf course. Yeah, you know, sometimes you end up making pars because you didn't go for it on a par five. Sometimes you, you know, you, but you're avoiding the idea that you could get stuck in a bunker and take a double bogey. You're you're reducing the whole level of what could go wrong and makes your day just so much. It mightn't be the most aggressive tactic at times, but it just makes your day that much uh, easier. And that means an easier week. And I, 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 from my experience anyway, you know, if you're in contention on a Sunday at the Open, it is so exciting that you've got to be ready for it. And that means, and we've seen it happen. How many players have we seen play well the first three days and fall apart on Sunday? Well, if their first three days were, you know, a bit of a wing and a prayer, if their strategy, they got away with it. Strategy, you, you've got to be sensible by the time you get to Sunday. Because if you've been, as I said, going on a wing and a prayer all the time, it does beat you up. Now, Sevi looks like he was at times but Chevy, Chevy was a genius and I think Sevy might have got bored if he tried to avoid all the bunkers on the golf course I think he needed that little bit of emphasis every day but uh you know for me I would have grown up as I said Sevy was a big influence on the open championship for me because I would have started watching golf uh, like my biggest memory my I, it's not as I said I have memories of the open that I don't know I didn't actually watch but I somehow know them but 84 would have been when I would have started. I would have been 13 years of age. And that's when I would have started watching blanket club coverage all day, every day of the Open when it was on. So you'd, you'd have gone to the golf club, sat there with other people. And the minute the telecast came on, you started watching. And you really enjoyed on Thursday and Friday, you enjoyed watching the stragglers coming in who were trying to make the cut, the unknown guy. And it always seemed with the Open Championship, this is a great thing there always seemed to be a qualifier or an unheralded player lead after day one. You know, you go out there and shoot eight on the par. Now, the sensible or the experienced players would know not to worry about them, but everybody gets so excited that this local qualifier has got to the top of the leaderboard and it added to the drama. Now, as I said, with experience, you realise he's had his day, but I think that's why people watch as well. It's because of the broad spectrum. It's an open. That means Anybody can qualify and play in it. It's not invitation only. You can play in the Open Championship. You can work your way through the system, get out there. And they seem to have their day in the sun when they, when they do qualify. So for the excitement level, I think my first memory is Seve. Seve at the Open in 84. And I think after that, I would have watched every minute of the coverage Uh Certainly for the next, I probably still do actually watch every minute of the coverage. I still like watching the open. Even when I'm at an open and playing, I still like to watch what's going on. Uh, it's the best coverage. The fact that it's wall to wall all day and you do get the chance to see just anybody play. Anybody. It's, it's I, and I think another thing with open championship golf, links golf, there's always an element of expectation. You don't know what's going to happen next. You really don't. You don't know, you know, a guy could make eagles and birdies have this tremendous run, but you also, there's always that element of worry that you're going to find a place that you just don't want to be, that you get stuck in. And, and you see that great round and you're just like, like, like St. Andrews, like nobody 
ever has ever been happy or settled with their round until they've played 17 because of the fear that it's all just going to go completely wrong on 17 that you I'm, I'm I'm not saying I have nightmares about this but I'm sure people that would be waking up the night before a Sunday at the Open Championship wondering at it can they ever get off the 17th hole that they get stuck in it maybe in the road hole bunker or, or worse than the road hole bunker I think at times I know you Tom you've you've had that hitting onto the road and things like that when it when it mattered but you've got to take the shot on so you know that's just the way it is how do you guys play the 17th hole what's your what's your line off the tee and uh has your strategy evolved over the years as you've played it more and more well, I make my par 5 and I go on <laughs> there's there's a lot to be said for that if you you know it's not the worst five in the world if you had a 15 foot for par on it every day you wouldn't you know you'd probably hold it two or three times so you wouldn't be losing out to the field is it still the challenge that that it was because if you think back to 1984 tom sorry to do this to you and Padre, because it's sort of i brought uh, it up br- br- you brought it up you brought it into the conversation but you were hitting you were hitting two iron in there uh, at the height of, of your game. Pordrick, you, you play every year at the Dunhill. What is it now? Uh, look, it's it's a different hole at the Dunhill. We hit drive and wedge, drive at times. It's They've built a new back tee. It's now back to yeah. what it was. I played with Mark Leishman, who I, I was in contention in 2015. I played with Mark Leishman. And in 17, when we got to it on the Sunday, the Open in 2015, and that's not with the new back tee. It was a golf hole. It like it was a drive and a wood or a long iron even, which we haven't seen. I haven't seen that in professional golf. I just haven't seen a golf hole. I can't tell you, except for that one hole, I can't tell you when I was potentially hitting a wood to a par four. And it you had to go left, even going down the middle, even the left half, you had to hit a good strike to get over the, the outbound. So it just like it's... As much as it can play easy and you can hit a drive and a wedge to it if it gets firm and fast, it has a bit of bite to it when you have to play it under pressure. And like there was people going up the second fairway on 17 that day. You hit it in the rough, you weren't getting to the green at all. Uh, you had to hit two, a good drive and a long iron. Now, a two iron back in Tom's day, that's probably four iron loft for us now. But, you know, it, it's, it still has the potential of being a big hole. Clearly, if you get nice sunny weather, the, one of the issues with, with modern equipment and that, and we'll see this, the better the weather, the better the equipment performs. So if you get a sunny, warm day, you know, players can hit the ball 300 yards plus in the air. And then on a Lynx golf course, that can be, you know, 30, 40 yards a run. But you get Lynx on a tough day. It all comes back down. You know, the ball starts carrying 240. And you're not carrying those bunkers and any miss hit is, yeah. It, it, that, that's the beauty of links. I would say, I, I have great memories of sunny weather, but I know when I played in Muirfield in 2002, I played for an hour in that storm that came in. Oh. Mm. I have never seen weather as bad in my entire life to be on the golf course. But again, the course didn't flood. There was no lightning. Play on. And I, I, I've never seen conditions as bad. But the Open Championship, you get what you get. There's no, I think that the RNA and the Open pride themselves in the fact that, look, we're not doing anything to the golf course. If you've got heavy rough, it's because the weather was that way. We're, we, we're going to set the course up, but if the rain comes in, we didn't decide that. It's just going to play difficult. 
And okay, maybe the afternoon guys are going to get a beautiful afternoon, but you know, we're not controlling it. And I love the fact that, you know, the open, they don't try and control it. They let nature take its course. And if we get a sunny one and we, and some of our best opens are the burnt out ones where the ball is running and we do get 20 under par, but that's okay. We're not going to trick it up to give, to make people shoot level par because nobody likes that. But the weather can make sure you can, Tom, which were for you, you, you must have had some bad weather tournaments where like, I remember, I didn't remember good weather, but which ones for you now? Was there, was there any particular bad weeks for you? Well, the toughest day, uh, and I, I played an open championship golf, not 2002. I wasn't, didn't play that day. I missed the cut. Uh, that was that Saturday, I believe. At, uh, yeah. And, uh, uh, but, uh, at Muirfield, but I, I do remember uh, the opening round at Muirfield in 1980, and that was uh, didn't know whether they're going to play or not. It was raining sideways, the wind was blowing 30, uh, it was cold. The har, the Scottish har, was covering the covering the golf course, and I, I remember that was the toughest day, and maybe the best round I ever played in the Open Championship that day. I shot 68, uh, ended up winning the tournament, but again, that was the tournament that I was putting so well. And, you know, as you said, it takes a little bit of pressure off you when you, when you know you're going to make every putt. I have to it say, is- sorry, I was just going to chip in on that Muirfield story, uh, Pordrig, and just, just to say, I mean, I, I, the thing I love about covering the Open for BBC Radio is that I'm out on the golf course. I'm able to be watching the golf firsthand, and I just love that part of my job. It is the best week of my working life every year. Um, and that day I'd been confined to the commentary box and normally I'd be really, really upset that I'd be stuck in the commentary box and not out on the course. But that particular day, I've never been so happy with a rotor. <laughs> never. I, I will, <laughs> I will say to Tom's comment there, right? He also, we're professional golfers and you're, you're a commentator. We're soft because we travel and we follow the sun. It's quite naive of us or foolish of us to actually think, they're going to call it off because that was the same in 2008 with the first day as a, as a Royal Birkdale. People are standing there. They're, they're going, they're not going to make us go out. They're going to call it off. The weather is so bad. They never call it off. Just go and play. That's the, that's the attitude. And because we're pros, you know, we're so used to, ah, look, it's not great. You know, I don't want to go out in that. Not when it comes to the open championship. You're going to play. Doesn't matter what the conditions throw up. You're out there playing. And that is going to happen in a virtual sense over the weekend, over the coming days. The highlights, the 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 the, the big denouement from eleven o'clock on on Saturday, Sunday, uh, British summer time. Just before we let you go, because we've we've gone way over time, guys. Um, a, a quick thought: Who would be your Open champion for the ages? Let's go, Solly. We've not heard from you for ages. Um, it's a great question. You know, I, I've, I've convinced myself I'm not going to get worked up as to who wins or who loses because that's golf isn't necessarily, you know, so-and-so should win. That's what should happen here, guys. Let's, uh, if, 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 a, if it was a surprising winner, I would be totally okay with that. Cause sometimes that happens in golf. So that's a great point. I, I, I you know, I'd be not, I, I don't know. I, I'm of the tiger era. So it seems weird to me if anybody other than tiger would win. But if you know, if it was Seffi, if it was Faldo, if it would, if it was Jack Nicholas, it would all make sense. And that's what is, you know, it doesn't mean that that player is the is better than that player or anything like that. It's just we're going to watch some some golf across different eras at the old course, and that's what I'm most excited for. So uh, I'll cop out with an answer to say anybody that wins, I, I can understand it. And I'm excited to see it. 
Okay, so that's one on the fence. <laughs> okay, I, I, I like Sully's attitude. I've got to say that, you know, anybody thrown in would add to the excitement and we, the Open is about excitement. I I can't go past Tom. I think Tom should win it. You know, as far as I'm concerned, not just that he's won five, five Open Championships, the style he won those Open Championships, the, the, the drama that he created in those Open Championships, but also the fact that he is synonymous with the Open Championship. Like there are, there's others, uh, and you know, Jack is is the greatest player we've ever had in the game of golf in terms of wins. And maybe you could say, to be fair, Tiger Woods could be the greatest player in the game of golf. You know, who knows? But their careers aren't as closely tied to the Open. And and Tom's Tom is an Open, is a links golfer, is an Open Championship player. I, I just sympathy, my not my sympathy, sympathy, my I, I I'm predisposed to going look. Tom Watson is the Lynx man. He's the open man. I, I would actually go Tom Watson, Seve. And then probably, you know, I, I, I who could decide between Jack and Tiger at different times? But I'd go Tom Watson, Seve. I'd even like to, I even like the idea of maybe, uh, you know, just for sheer flair, I just like maybe throwing in a bit of Trevino there as well. Maybe he's, is he an outside bet maybe? Yeah. Uh, but I'm going Tom Watson, Seve as my one-two. See, I didn't. I didn't go for Tom because he he wasn't so confident he was going to yeah. win. That didn't seem like uh, didn't uh, seem like the right pick. Now you're yeah. making yeah. out that the results yeah. all important. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I, I'm I'm with you. I'm with you, Podrick. Tom, every step of the way, five times a champion, and don't forget 2009, where obviously at the age of 59 he equaled the lowest round of the week over 72 holes. So you know, and if you want to hear lots and lots about that, then check out the open conversation on the on the from from the RNA because Tom and I had a massive chat about that just a couple of weeks ago and that's uh, that's out there but Tom the final word to you as a five-time champion um, who would you plump for and and you don't have to be modest you seriously don't have to be modest um, Harry Varden <laughs> <laughs> last 50 years last 50 years uh, damn it um, <laughs> Uh, I think you have to go with. Uh, I think you have to go. I think you have to go with Tiger probably. Uh, you know, Jack is is there, and Seve is there. Uh, I'm there in, in 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 a certain respect. I won more tournaments, but there, you know, I didn't win at St Andrews. So in, in, since this virtual tournament is uh, Open Championship is on St Andrews, uh, I think you have to discount my five wins. Uh, to, to those people who've won on that turn on, on St. Andrews. So I think, uh, you know, when all is said and done, I think you're going to see Tiger winning it. Um, and, and Jack a close second. Well, we shall see. It's, uh, it's a fascinating debate. We could have talked on and on and on and on about the Open Championship. It is a big shame that we're, we're not able to be at one this year. All being well, we will next year for the 149th Open at Royal St. George's. Listen, it's been fantastic listening to all your stories. Solly, thanks so much for joining us from the United States. Pordrig, uh, to you too, and to you, uh, Tom Watson. A reminder from me and Carter, uh, the final round, 11 o'clock Sunday, British summer time. Uh, all the details will be available for the Open for the Ages on theopen.com. So check that out. But from all of us, it's bye-bye for now. Bye-bye. This has been an original audio production from The Open.